Well, we are uh, through our Advent series of studies, and so we're planning to return to John's Gospel. We're going to begin studying John again in John chapter 4, but before we get back to John, which we're going to do next week, Lord willing, before we do that, I thought what we would do this week is take our time to study a psalm together, um, because just as we're on the edge of a new year, and, and quite frankly, because I haven't preached a psalm for a while and I kind of miss it. Um, and, and since we have a natural break in our series of studies, I just thought it would be a, a good week to refresh ourselves in some of the psalmist's truth. Uh, an earlier generation referred to the psalms as a medicine chest for the soul. Um, these inspired poems in our Bible serve us in, in seasons of great joy. Uh, these inspired poems serve us in seasons of, of sorrow and confusion and difficulty. Um, on the sorrow side, Joni Erickson Tata made the comment that the Psalms wrap nouns and verbs around our pain better than any other book. And on the joy side, C.S. Lewis said, The most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is to express the same delight in God which made David dance. So the Psalms have this unique way of giving voice to the extremely varied elements of our experiences as we walk the path of faith, including times of great joy, including times of difficulty and sorrow, and also just the the regular seasons of day in and day out faithfulness. Uh, So Dale Ralph Davis, who's an Old Testament scholar and pastor, he's retired now I think, but, but he wrote a commentary on some selected Psalms, and he entitled his commentary, Slogging Along in the Paths of Righteousness which I really like, slogging along in the paths of righteousness. So the, so the Psalms give voice to our experiences in the uptimes and in the downtimes, and they serve us in all the, in all the spaces in between. Uh, so for today, we're going to take Psalm 115. Uh, psalm 115 is a psalm about confidence. Um, so, so let's think about that for a moment, this notion of confidence. Uh, here we are on the edge of a new year. And in the beginning of every new year, we have a sense of of hope and progress and betterment impressed upon us. That's usually the way things are as a new year begins. I'm not much of one for New Year's resolutions. I think I do have a couple for this coming year. But but we look out to a new year with a sense that there's work to be done and growth to be had, uh, whether spiritually or physically or professionally, relationally, in all those categories of life. And maybe that's where you're at this morning, looking out at the new year full of confidence and energy. You have a sense of of sturdiness and certainty. Uh, But that's not the only posture we might be experiencing as 2024 opens before us. Uh, With all the motivational slogans and encouragement swirling around us as the new year approaches, uh, maybe you're not feeling particularly confident and full of energy, and instead you're feeling a bit fragile. Uh, As a new year looms, Life doesn't have the hue of of unbridled confidence that it has maybe in New Year's gone by. But instead, if we're being really honest, instead of confidence, 2024 is right over the next hill and and maybe you have a foreboding sense of frailty. We think about the New Year maybe from a place where we say to ourselves, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to make it through all that lies ahead. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I bet more than a few of us could say amen to that. Uh, no, no matter the new year or not, we know what it is to face days that are coming with a genuine lack of confidence. We feel our personal frailty. We feel our weakness. And what do we do with that as Christian believers? What do we do when the uncertainty sets in? You feel uncertain at all this morning? 
What do we do when the shadows of our struggles seem to be growing more and more dense? What do we do when the hesitancies and insecurities about decisions that need to be made and actions that must be taken, what do we do when those concerns set in? Well, for all we might do, one thing that can be of invaluable help to us is to be refreshed in the truth God has supplied to us for just such occasions. Uh, truth like we find in this poem called Psalm 119, uh, Psalm 115. Psalm 115 is a, is a song that renews us in a posture of true confidence, not in ourselves, but a, a posture of confidence in the Lord who promises to be the one who shields us, who promises to be the one who helps and blesses us. And so as we come to this psalm, we come to words that give voice to our need, a voice that we, uh, voice that we need to have help with often in, in times of, of difficulty, in times when we're feeling our weakness. One of the things that goes along with that is a, is a lack of words to express what we're, what we're genuinely facing. And the psalmist helps us with these things, not only to give us voice, to give voice to our experience, but also to give truth that renews us in the persevering strength that we need. And so we're going to look at Psalm 115 together. We can call it a psalm of confidence for a new year. Really, we could call it a psalm of confidence for any day of the year, uh, just for living the Christian life. And we see how the psalmist develops things as we go. So, so if you look at the text, and I would encourage you to follow along as always this morning. Uh, if you look at the text, we're going to start in verse 1, where the psalmist begins by renewing us in a proper tone. We're being renewed in a proper tone. Um. Tone is an interesting thing. Maybe when you were growing up, your parents told you to watch your tone. Um, just to think about this, when you enter the context of a meeting, you know, the way the people leading the meeting, the way they enter the room, that tends to set a tone for the meeting, uh, doesn't it? it? It may be a happy tone. It may be a somber tone. Or you sit down with a client or a coworker, and the same thing happens right from the beginning. There's a certain tone that's set. It could be a friendly tone. It could be a tense tone. Uh, it could be something peaceful, it could be a tone that's awkward, uh, but when we meet with people, we, we know that the way things begin can set a certain tone, and, and that's not just true in our interpersonal interactions, the same thing is always true in, in songs and poetry, at least oftentimes it's true, how things begin set the tone. So, so if the country song begins with a minor chord played on the guitar, we can be sure that his girl left him and his truck broke down, All right, the tone is set, we know where things are going to be going. Um, but whether it's a work meeting or whether it's, it's uh, whatever the new Chris Stapleton song is about the discouragement he's currently facing, whatever it is, the tone is set in the beginning and tone matters. It helps us orient ourselves with the rest of what's going to follow. And that's certainly the case in Psalm 15 with the first verse. Right away, a tone is set. And it's a tone that reflects a renewal and even a reorientation of proper priorities. So verse 1 reads, Not to us, Lord, not to us. But to your name give glory because of your uh, faithful love and because of your truth. So a tone is being set. A certain emphasis is in place there. And that emphasis, that tone, is one of reorientation away from self toward the living God. And even more precisely, we could say there's a reorientation from the elevation of self toward the elevation of the living God. Uh, you notice how the line that's repeated here in verse 1 is telling. A repeated line in poetry is always important. And, and the thing that the psalmist says twice is, not to us. Right? Not to us, O Lord, not to us. So you see, the psalmist knows that when concerns exist around where our confidence and hope and help and strength really lie, 
The psalmist knows that as we uh, need to be renewed in a dynamic posture of life that's different, he knows that that begins with replacing high thinking of myself with an increased high thinking of the Lord, or even high thinking of ourselves as a community. You'll notice the plurals are here, with a high thinking of, of the Lord Himself. And, and we see how extremely insightful the psalmist is on this point, because so often what can cause us to be in a troubled place of anxiety, at least I'll speak for myself, what can cause us to be in that place of doubt or fear instead of a place of peace, um, is that stubborn, indwelling desire I have to be the one who gets the glory. Isn't that what often fosters our sense of anxiety? We face circumstances that seem overwhelming, and often what's at the very center of angst is that big question, what will others think of us as they watch us go through this? Will my reputation be upset? Will people see me for how frail I really am? I'm, I'm trying to retain a little glittery fragment of glory for myself, and I'm distressed because of it. And what's here reorients us. It, it changes our tone. To your name be glory, O Lord, because of your faithful love and truth. So you see the refocusing that's happening here. We're saying, O Lord, you're actually the, the steady, promise-keeping God who never forgets His loyal love. You're the God who's only trustworthy and constant and perfect care. And you're the one who never fails. So, so because of who you are, because of the character of your personhood, the constancy of your personhood, you are the one who's worthy of honor and praise and recognition. And so, and so right from the start here, we see how the psalmist helps us begin unburdening ourselves of the glory seeking that may underpin our ambitions and causes so much distress most of the time. Right from the beginning, I unburden myself of living for the fame of my own reputation and say, to your name, Lord, be glory. May the things I do and say, may the things we do and say be oriented in such a way that my life points to you and your greatness instead of lifting up and promoting myself, which can be so freeing for us. I'm not, I'm not living to gain the praise of others. That, that, that's a train wreck of a New Year's resolution, isn't it? I just hope to be really well thought of by as many people as possible this year. Monday is going to be depressing, a depressing day. Now, your first conversation with your wife is going to be a depressing conversation, right? We, we know these things. I'm living to promote the fame of the steadfast love and truth of who God is, not the fame of who I am. And so even as we start to think this way, there's such a sense of relief because my part is not self-glory seeking. My part is to live out a life of obedience to God, bringing honor, honor and glory, proving the worth of who He is. That's my orientation of life. I don't know what tomorrow holds. The pressures are there, no doubt. But I know what my calling is tomorrow. And my calling is not to engage in a kind of personal glory gathering endeavor. But my calling is to seek the honor of the living God through my life lived in obedience to Him. No matter what others may think, we rest in this purpose for us, to live for the praise of His high name. So, so not to us, not to us, but to your name be glory. And, and so we can just think about how that, that kind of tone changes our perspective of some things that are on the horizon in the new year. How, how does it change our perspective to say this? I'm not concerned with my reputation first and foremost in what's coming. How does that change our perspective? I'm concerned for the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm concerned for the honor of the King of steadfast love. That's my priority. How relieving that is. Because it frees us to acknowledge our weakness and it frees us to depend upon His strength. 
So, so the psalmist starts here with, with this verse that renews us in a proper tone. Not to us, but to your name be glory. We're concerned with the Lord's high reputation and we're relieved from exalting ourselves. So that's first of all. And then, and then because the psalmist is always extremely realistic as he's helping us think through renewed and true confidence, because he's realistic, he, needs from, he moves from a renewal in proper tone to help us face a troubling question in verse 2. He helps us face a troubling question. Verse 2, I'll just read it again. It said, why should the nation say, and here's the question, where is their God? Where is their God? So, so if verse 1 renews us in li- living for the glory and honor of the Lord and not ourselves, verse 2 comes along with this question that can actually shake that priority fairly significantly. Remember, the psalmist is a good physician of souls. He knows how these things can come and affect us. So the psalmist restates for us a question that reflects the popular sentiment of the day, and it exists all around us even to this day, and that sentiment is this, where is their God? There's the troubling question. The world around us asks us all the time in different ways, where is your God? Where is your object of trust in all that's going on in your life? Now, now just in terms of context, uh, it can help us to think about what's behind this question, really what's behind this psalm in general um, as, it, as it's put together here. Uh, scholars, uh, as they piece things together, the, the regular conclusion is that, is that this psalm is added to a, a number of psalms in the in the Psalter that reflect uh, the need for Israel to be renewed in trust. They face occasions of deep difficulty. Uh, so there's some clues in here even that, that Israel may be, might be facing the context of the Babylonian exile as this psalm is written. So they're facing things that are already confidence-shaking. They're facing things that, that bring them from an exalted position to a low position in the eyes of the watching world around them. And as the people of God are evidently struggling, probably even quite severely here, the people around, the nations around, are asking this natural question, where is their God? Right? In other words, what good is the God they serve if they find themselves in the kind of trouble they find themselves in? And, and that's a difficult question. That's a faith-disturbing question. But that is a kind of the kind of question that we can face ourselves. It's a question that we can face as it comes from others. It's a question that we can face as it percolates in our own hearts. Because as we go through things that are uniquely heavy, or maybe as the, as the immediate future even holds some really overwhelming and confusing potential for us, someone might come along with this question, or the question comes up in our own heart, where is your God in all this? And as that question gnaws at us, we can start to wonder, maybe I should look somewhere else for help. We think to ourselves, you know, I've been living my life by the confession that the instruction and the way of the Lord is good. I've been living my life committed to that truth, but quite frankly, I'm facing more trouble now in my life than when I was much less faithful to God in another season of my life. Then as I think about what might get me through this, there are some, some pretty shiny alternatives out there that I think would fit much better and make me feel much more comfortable. I'm looking ahead at what's coming, and I can think of two or three sources of relief offered to me that, quite frankly, are very appealing. And where even is God in all that's been going on for me? We can have that internal dialogue. We can face that question from others. The world around us constantly is asking that question. Why are you even trusting in the God of the Bible? Why trust in the living and true God? Why confess the the sufficiency of Jesus Christ? Why are you bothering with this? I see the things you're going through in your life. They're difficult. They're hard. It doesn't seem like that's much help for you. If he's supposed to be your God, where even is he in all that's going on in your life? 
And while we're oriented initially in this psalm to say, I'm going to live for your glory, O God, we can walk out into the ups and downs of our weeks, have this question hit us, and be knocked very far down in our confidence again, can't we? Where even is he in all of this? I want to live for his glory, but where even is he? And so what the psalmist does is he acknowledges this troubling question that we can face, and then he responds next by giving three big truths that we, that we need to be able to confess in order to uh, be renewed in the confidence required of us, in order to be renewed in what it really looks like to have faith in the midst of, of things that can be shaky. So now for the rest of the psalm, we have these three big truths, and the first one is verse 3. This is one of those instances we might notice where the psalmist encourages dialogue uh, with each other and even in our own hearts. In fact, if you notice just the structure of the psalm, just as an aside, You've got it, kind of an antiphonal feel to it here where there's a caller, like in verse 9, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. There's this back and forth conversation that's going in this psalm. So the psalmist is encouraging us in a conversant kind of dialogue here. And, and a lot of times that begins with a dialogue with our own heart, doesn't it? We need to be able to speak to ourselves in categories of truth like what we're going to be given here. So we're renewed in the praise of God. I'm going to live my life to His glory. The troubling question comes in, why would you ever bother doing that? I, I don't actually see God all that active in your life. To be honest, it looks like things are, 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 are more troubling for you now than when, they, uh, when you didn't trust in the Lord. So what do we do with that? The psalmist says we need to speak in these three ways about, about our circumstances. The very first thing is this in verse 3. We need to say to ourselves, to each other, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. That's the first thing we need to say. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Now, when we first hear that statement, it might not seem all that helpful because when we're facing overwhelming circumstances and we hear the phrase, God is in the heavens, we might almost laugh to ourselves and say, it sure does seem like that's true. It absolutely seems like that's true. We think of the heavens as a far off place where God exists in a, in a far away, separated, disconnected condition from us. We're down here troubled and burdened and worried in the world and he's up there in heaven, far off, aloof, doesn't seem to care, doesn't seem to notice. Our God is in the heavens. We might be tempted to think this means he's far away, especially if we're in a season of feeling like he's far away. But that's not what the psalmist means. When the scriptures speak about God being in the heavens, the purpose of that kind of language is not to communicate that God is far off. In fact, the confession of the psalmist all through the scriptures is exactly the opposite. We have uh, psalms like Psalm 139, don't we, where, where the psalmist says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, like in the place of the dead, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall lay hold of me. So, so to speak of God being in the heavens is not the scripture's way of saying that God is far off. He's always near to us whether we feel it or not, He's near. In fact, His nearness is personified, isn't it? In the, in the suffering presence of Jesus Christ Himself in the Advent we just celebrated. He's not the God who stays far when we're needy. He's the God of the cross. He comes near. So, so then what does it mean for us to confess that our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases? Well, to speak this way is not a reference to the remoteness of God. Instead, it's a poetic way to reference the unlimited reach and authority of God that extends over the whole of His creation. So listen to this explanation from a pastor of an earlier generation. He puts it like this. He says, when the psalmist places God in heaven, he does not confine him to a certain locality nor set limits to his infinite essence, 
but instead he denies the limitation of his power. Let's put negative. He, by saying God is in the heaven, I'm denying that his power is limited. He denies the limitation of his power. He denies that he's subject to fate or fortune. In short, he puts the universe under his control and being superior to every obstruction, he does freely everything that may seem good to him. He is not only superior to all impediments, but he can even render them subservient to the advancement of his own designs. That's long and wordy, but what the, what, the, what the writer there is saying is God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases. He's confessing that whatever pressure I may be facing and whatever doubt I may be feeling, the Lord who loves us with that verse 1 kind of steadfast, faithful love, He reigns in absolute supremacy over every aspect of the cosmos and our lives, and nothing can stop Him from doing exactly what accords with His holy will and design, up to and including the perfect and intimate care of us. So so when I'm faced with the troubling question of where even is your God in all this, I respond this way. He's in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. I don't respond by pretending to understand why things are exactly like they are. I don't respond by, by asserting that God may be in the heavens actually, but he should be doing all that I please. No, I assert that he's in the heavens and what goes on is not separated from his ultimate purposes of grace for me. may have shared this story before, I don't remember, but D.A. Carson tells a story of a man, I think the man was in his church at the time, and this, this man lost his adult son in a tragic accident. And, and in the course of, of dialogue, of a friend of this father, who wasn't a Christian, uh, he came up to the grieving father and he asked, how could you still trust in God after all this has happened? He said, where, and then he asked the question, where was God when your son died? And this man's response was as follows. He said, God was seated on the same throne in heaven he was seated on when his, when his son died for me. So, so, so when it comes to cultivating true confidence in the midst of whatever comes in the course of our lives, it begins with us making this confession. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Which, remember from verse 1, for those who will trust in him, all that God pleases for us is sourced in steadfast love and faithfulness. So the question comes, where is your God? And here's how we respond first of all. First things first, I'll make this confession. My God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I may not feel it. He certainly may not be doing all that I please, but he reigns in perfect, faithful supremacy. So first things first, I remind myself, we remind ourselves, our God is in the heavens. Secondly then, to be renewed in our confidence in God, we need to remind ourselves that alternatives to God produce no life. Alternatives to God produce no life. This is verses 4 to 8. Um, I won't read all the verses again, but you can just, just look down and see the point the psalmist is making actually very easily in the text. So, so the gods of the nations, in other words, the, the alternatives to the living and true God that others are trusting in, they're crafted by human hands, verse 4. So immediately we see a contrast. Our God is in the heavens over all humanity. The alternatives to God are made by mere humanity. So there's that immediate co- vertical contrast. And then the refrain that runs through this section is, regarding false gods, they can't, they can't, they can't, they can't, they can't. There are seven cannots crammed into this section. So so in contrast uh, with with the living and true God who is in the heavens, here we have the the idols of the people, the false 
objects of trust of the people. They cannot, they cannot, they cannot, they cannot. In the context of the ancient Near East, obviously, and still in the world today, physical idols, which we have described here, um, physical idols are present, but those, those idols, the psalmist is saying, are just that they're, they're physically crafted, made by human hands. In fact, they might even have a mouth molded in an image, uh, but the point is that mouth can't speak. They, they can't see, hear, feel, smell, walk, or make any sounds. They, they can't do anything except, and here's the thing to notice in verse 8, the idols of the nations can't do anything with one exception. Those who make them are just like them as, who, as are all who trust in them. So, so you see how the only thing idols do produce is actually the powerlessness of the worshiper. In terms of false gods, in terms of false sources of trust, they can't, they can't, they can't, and those who make them and trust in them are just like them, continually reduced and powerless. So, So to trust in alternatives to the God of the heavens is to gain lifelessness, is what the psalmist is saying here. To trust in things that can't is to become like them, unable and powerless. So Robert Alter, who's who's a renowned Hebrew scholar, his commentaries are always extremely helpful, but he's also very reserved in his writing, and he, and he writes with great brevity. And this is very out of character for him, but he makes this comment in his, in his uh, comments on this psalm. He, he says this, which is just out of character for him, but it's, it's almost humorous. He says, The idols, sheer inert stuff, have none of the capacities of life, making those who worship them ridiculous. It's kind of blunt, but, but his point is taken. And another scholar goes further and says that false gods produce a tragedy of subhuman existence for the worshiper. See, focusing on the fact that, that we go backwards from what leads to life when we trust in what is not the Lord. And while we don't necessarily have crafted images placed in front of us as an object for our trust, although that can be the case, but not too often, more often than not, idols in our context are much more subtle. And we know that. So, so we're going through something maybe this very difficult or, or we're facing days of uncertainty. We're tempted uh, to, to look to alternatives to the living God. This where is God question has come into our minds. And someone might say to us, you know, it seems like your God isn't really much help. I have some alternatives to him that, uh, that you might find helpful. Why don't you just throw yourself into your work and find fulfillment in career advancement? Or give yourself permission to pursue wealth and material comforts wholeheartedly. Or stop being controlled by restricted biblical parameters for sexuality and be more free to pursue physical pleasure. Or find guidance in in these alternative forms of spirituality. These things will be life-giving. They'll be what holds you up when the rest of life seems chaotic, but that's not true. They all end in the tragedy of lifelessness. Keller, who's Tim Keller, who's, who's written so helpfully on this subject, hasn't he? But he, he made this, this comment. He says, Idols have no power to give you the love, forgiveness, and guidance you need. But paradoxically, they do have the power to make you like them and to keep you both spiritually blind and, uh, and unable to see as well as spiritually lame and unable to change. Alternatives to the Lord produce no life. In fact, they produce the opposite of life. So so we face pressure-filled times, unknown futures, anxieties that seem to be lurking around the corner. And what do we do with that? Well, we start here. 
Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And then we remind ourselves of this truth. Alternatives to trusting in God do not produce life. As tempting as they may be at times, they will not produce life. And then finally, in addition to those two responses, we have one more thing. We have to engage in the proper counter-truth. So we say, the Lord we serve does produce life. This is verses 9 to 18. The Lord we serve does produce life. So if you just look at verses 9 to 18, you notice in the first part of those verses, we have this universal call to trust in the Lord. Israel, trust in the Lord. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. All you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Uh, so, so we have this threefold call to trust here from, from maybe the leader of corporate worship as this psalm is being sung. Um, all Israel and all of Aaron's house, uh, which would be the priests of Israel, that's Aaron's house. And then all who fear the Lord. So in the scriptures, uh, non-Jews who have confessed faith in Yahweh and are brought into the covenant community in the Old Testament, they're often referred to as God-fearers. So these would be like the Gentiles among them. So you've got all of Israel in general. You've got the priests. You've got others who have come into the faith. Um, there's this threefold call to trust in the Lord, which means instead of putting our confidence in things that can't, uh, which can't help, we're to put our confidence in the one who's, who's worthy of our trust. Um, because as we see in these, in these verses, he's life for us, which is just emphasized again and again. So the psalmist refers to uh, to, to the Lord as our shield there time and time again. Uh, Israel trust in the Lord for He's our shield. Right? Which means that the Lord is the protector of His people. That's one reason why we trust in Him. We place our confidence in Him. He's our protector. Which is so important for us to remember as we navigate the Christian life, as we face things we do and recognize that hardships will come. The Lord is not the one who magically makes all difficulty go away. He's the one who protects us in the midst of those things. Pain will be present. Right, there's some level of truth in what Wesley says to Buttercup. Life is pain, highness. Right, anyone who says differently is selling something. Right, trials come. Trials are used to build our faith, no doubt, but they can be deeply burdening. Christ said it himself. We quoted it last week. I think in this world you will have trouble. We are aware that trouble comes in this life as we follow the living God. We're not immune to sickness and heartache and hardships of all kinds. As followers of Christ, we're not guaranteed freedom from troubles until the guaranteed protection. And we will face difficulty as we trust in the Lord. We are guaranteed protection in the midst of those difficulties that we face. The Lord is our shield. So, so our confidence is not in our ability to pretend the difficulty isn't there. Our confidence is not sourced in getting through the confusion or pain as quickly as possible. Our confidence does not require that all be well on our timetable. Our confidence is in the truth that the Lord will keep us. In fact, there may be something you're heading into in, in the days ahead and you need to have this truth on repeat in your hearts. The Lord is my shield. The Lord is my shield. In the largest, most eternal sense, He's proved that at the cross, hasn't He? Christ came and shielded us from the victory death would have otherwise had over us because of our sin. Christ stood between us and the attack. He took the sword thrust for us as, as our shield in the most cosmically, eternally significant way possible at the cross. And we rejoice in that truth eternally. And along with that, in our day-by-day -day lives, we allow it to be our, our lives to be governed by that truth on a daily basis. The Lord is my shield. He's proved it. He's my keeper. As the psalmist says in another psalm, in Psalm 91, He'll deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. 
He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness, so the fact that His loyal love will always exist for you, is what? Do you know the psalm? A shield and a buckler. A shield is, is big and protects you from long-range weapons like arrows and spears. A buckler is a tiny shield, and it protects you in short-range fighting. So those things that are far away and come in and seem like they could destroy us are those things that are very near and seem like they can harm us. The psalmist is saying the Lord is the one who protects us from those things. Right, we trust in Him because He's the one who promises to keep us. We won't finally be lost or overrun or undone. And so we don't just trust in Him uh, because, uh, because He's in the heavens. He does all that He pleases and the, and the bigness of who He is is there. But there's this intimacy that's reflected in these things. He's our shield. And as the text says here, He's also our help. So He doesn't just maintain us in trouble, but He's also the one who affects His power to see us through the things we face. He sees us through. So, so the hymn writer can say, My will is weak, my strength is frail, and all my hope is nearly gone. There's the first couple lines. It's a good place to start. My will is weak, my strength is fail, and all my hope is nearly gone. I can but trust thy working true to gently hold and lead me on. So the living God is our help, and we experience this. We experience this. To consider a day ahead when we're lying down at night before circumstances that are very overwhelming that we're going to face tomorrow, we lay our head down on the pillow, we consider the reality of Christ's words talking about how God the Father provides for us perfectly just like the birds of the field. We think about those things, we go to sleep, we wake up the next day and what happens? We make it through the day. The Lord is our help. He helps us through the things we face. He's our assistant in that sense. He helps us and carries us along. He gently holds us. And we need to remember that this morning, that this coming year may have some very significant, challenging things for some of us. And we need to hear this truth. The God who is sovereign over heaven and earth and who proved His limitless love for us at the cross has committed Himself to being our helper. Which is such an extraordinary truth. What a gracious God that the all-powerful one would exercise Himself to keep bringing us along, to assist us and support us in the life of He's called us to live. It's an amazing truth. So He's our shield and He's our help. And then in the rest of the verses here, we also see that He's the one who blesses. Remember, the Lord is the one who gives life. This is what we're reminding ourselves of. He protects us. He helps us and He blesses us. Verse 12 and on, we see this covenant-keeping kind of language here. When we have remembering and blessing going together, that's covenantal kind of language. God's fulfilling His promises. So the Lord doesn't forget what He's promised to do. He's promised to bring life to His people. Verse 13, both small and great alike. Right? The blessing of the Lord reflects His purposes of life for us. So, so with the Lord comes true fullness and peace and flourishing. That's what His blessing does. That doesn't mean that things are easy and without pain, but it does mean that the purposes of God will be good for us even in the hardship and our end will not be destruction, but ultimately edification and perseverance and what truly leads to life everlasting. So He blesses us with what we need to carry out His purposes for us. And even as verse 14 indicates, He does this from one generation of believers to the next, for us and then for our children. After all, verse 16 makes it clear that the Lord's purpose is to give. He's the one, everything belongs to Him, but He's given His creation to us as humanity to steward in verse 16. 
See so the psalmist is calling us out to meditate on this? Look at what the Lord gives to us. If you, if you doubt it, it's a little bit like the birds of the air situation. Look around and see what the Lord has given. He's given beautiful days. He's given stormy days. He's given us the, the beauty of creation to enjoy and to cultivate. Right? He's the God who gives. And of course, as we fast forward in the biblical narrative, if, if, if he's, he's not only the God who gives us the beauty of creation, but He's the one who gives His only Son, as Paul makes clear. If He will give His only Son, He will spare no good thing for so he's the God who truly gives what's conducive to life. He's the one who blesses. So verse 17 and 18, in the end with the Lord, you won't be overrun by the silence of death, but we'll return. Actually, the blessings of the Lord to us, we'll actually return that with blessing ourselves, with praises of our own directed to him both now and forever. And so the psalm ends, hallelujah, praise Yahweh. So, so this new year, may hold hardship for some of us. This new year may hold a great deal of joy for some of us. Or maybe uh, for us, this new year will just be a year of slogging along in the paths of righteousness. Whatever the case may be, we enter our days renewed with confidence because we are trusting in the life giver. We're renewed in a proper tone. Are we not to us, not to us, but to your name, give glory. There's our priority. And we may face troubling questions. No doubt we will. Where is your God in all of this? But we respond with confidence because unlike the hope the world offers, which is completely powerless, the Lord we serve is over all things. And so we confess and reconfess again and again. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The idols of the world are lifeless. But our God is the one who gives life. He protects us. He helps us. He blesses us ultimately with the hope that extends to all eternity beyond death itself through what Christ has done. So as we begin this year, whatever, whatever goals or ambitions or fears or anxious thoughts we may have, we can start here. And uh, the hymn writer can even help us when he says, O Lord, break our schemes of earthly joy that we might find our all in Thee. So true confidence for the new year. Really, true confidence for the new year and beyond is sourced in a truth like we find in this poem here. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory. We make that our prayer as we enter our days. Let's pray now. So, Father, we do ask that we would be people who glorify your name, who live in such a way that we declare your weighty worth. You're the one who's worthy of our affection, our allegiance, the entirety of our lives. And we ask that we'd be renewed in such a way that we would trust in you. Even uh, when the shadows loom, when the clouds can grow, we ask that we would be constantly turning and returning to who you are, knowing that uh, despite how we may feel, despite the things that we may face, you are the one who will keep us to the end. You've promised that, Lord Jesus, that uh, nothing can take us out of your hand and we rest in that eternal care and promised love. Renew us in that truth this morning. Uh, we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.